You've heard me talk about Morning Kick, used by former karate champion Chuck Norris. It's a daily drink from Roundhouse Provisions that combines ultra-potent greens like spirulina and kale with probiotics, prebiotics, collagen, and even ashwagandha. Just mix with water, stir, and enjoy. Unlike other green drinks out there, this one tastes similar to strawberry lemonade, and I enjoy it. I know I don't eat as many vegetables as I should, but Morning Kick has helped me make up for that, and I feel great. I have more energy and better digestion. It's an easy part of my morning routine. My wife started taking it as well. Go to roundhouseprovisions.com forward slash Harris for up to 44% off your regular priced order. Plus, every purchase is backed by a 90-day money-back guarantee. So if you want to experience smoother digestion, a boost of energy, and just an overall healthier body, then go to roundhouseprovisions.com forward slash Harris today. Welcome once again, everyone, to the Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host, John Harris, as always, dealing with a little bit of allergies here in upstate New York. It's uh, the Hudson Valley is the worst place in the entire country, so I've heard, for allergies. So you'll have to bear with me a little bit today. Um, but uh, we have MD Perkins with us, who we've had before uh, to talk about same-sex, uh, or I, I probably should get my terms right because you define these <laughs> in the beginning of your book, MD, but gay-affirming, yeah. theology, same-sex attraction homosexuality. We'll get into the weeds and all of this stuff uh, because uh, MD, you, you've come out with a new book called Dangerous Affirmation. It's the only book I know of that actually engages side B Christianity, the revoice theology. I don't know of anyone else who's doing this. And so thank you once again for joining me and being willing to talk about this. Yeah. Good as always, John, to be with you. So uh, you've written before, I think when we had you on, you, you had uh, at that point, you wrote a book, uh, but it wasn't really a book. What was it? It was just kind of a PDF that yeah, explains so, uh, some of this. Yeah, so that's a little leaven uh, confronting the ideology of the Revoice movement. I read, it, I, I wrote it just initially as research, and and then it, it I expanded it out. And so basically, it's just a, a free paper, you know, kind of a white paper on the topic of of the the side B slash Revoice movement. Uh, the gay celibate theology, all of that that kind of stuff that's infecting uh, the the Southern Baptists, the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, Church of the Nazarene, um, Anglican Church in North America, and some other places are dealing with this. Anyway, so that's uh, a, a little leaven was, uh, was what we were talking about last time. Right. And well, and now you have an actual book. We'll put the link in the info section called Dangerous Affirmation, The Threat of Gay Christianity. Yeah. And this is... Uh, how many pages this is 200 a little over 200 pages i mean it's it's a book yeah. it's it's sizable and it's it's really good i think because it actually it parses everything out it makes things understandable and that's what i hope to do on the podcast today is make some things understandable that people have been confused about because it seems to me md you could correct mm -hmm. me if i'm wrong that the biggest tactic in all of this is to just muddy the waters to yeah. just create more confusion uh I mean, do you get that sense, too, that sometimes there's even maybe a purposeful motive behind this where there are uh, people who advocate for gay Christianity or gay affirming theology just really, really want to cause confusion in the hearts and minds of believers? Yeah, I mean, equivocation is such a big part of this whole conversation because and that's 
honestly, John, I mean, that's how I got into even researching this topic. You know, I, I, I didn't set out to write a book. I didn't set out to write a paper on the revoice movement. I was just trying to understand these things for myself so that, so that I could explain them to people around me. And then as we were working on a documentary called In His Image, Delighting in God's Plan for Gender and Sexuality, you know, I, I'm a film producer with American Family Association. So I, I, I carry multiple hats here uh, in that regard. But, uh, you know, we were researching that that documentary and then this whole question of of you know the gay christian movement and particularly this movement that's emerged within conservative spaces this whole revoice gay celibate theology stuff and you know to, to your point like there is a lot of equivocation and a lot of people when they speak are, are muddying the waters and some of that is intentional i think i think there are leaders who are more aligned with that than they want to let on that they are so they want to say things that um, that have the air of orthodoxy to them, you know, have the ring of orthodoxy to them, but are adjusting pieces of the language or introducing little ideas within it. Um, and then but then, you know, some of those things get carried up by other people who aren't being careful and aren't listening discerningly. And so then they just kind of add their own take on it. And so really, I mean when it comes to the sexuality issue, I mean, even just getting clear definitions of, of terminology and, and common usage of those terms can be challenging. And that was the initial parts of this, this book project and the A Little Leaven project was just trying to understand what are people even talking about when they use terms like same-sex attraction? Is that distinct from sexual orientation? Or is that is that just another word for it? Is that a synonym? Is that the same as when we talk about homosexuality as a, as, a, as an idea anyway? So you can kind of see, you know, the, the terms that you use matter and the, the, the terms that people choose to use matter and they, they've chosen them oftentimes for very specific reasons. And so, um, you know, to push back on that and to really try and understand what, what are you really communicating there, I think is important for us. So let's do this. Let's get into the weeds a little on these various threats because you, you survey those at the beginning of the book. And then uh, let's maybe bring some biblical theology to shine on this and to help clear it up. So what are the threats then? Because you identify various kind of schools of thought of uh, people or groups yeah. trying to take homosexuality in some form and fuse it with Christianity. So what are we looking at? Yeah. So the, the big picture, you know, I use the term gay Christianity. That's just kind of a catch-all term to describe this overall movement to reconcile the Christian faith with homosexuality, you know, two things that can't be reconciled. But within that overall movement, there are these individual threads. I identify three of them, what I call affirming theology or the affirming church movement. And then what the the other one, and so that one's I guess in some degree it might be seen as in the middle. And then there's one that's very far to the left, which is queer theology, which is just this, uh, I'll, I'll unpack that idea in just a little bit. So there's there's a, a affirming theology, queer theology, and then there is gay celibate theology or the revoice movement. So those those three ideas, um, you know, affect different different groups of people, people from different denominational and theological backgrounds. You know, the affirming church and affirming theology has very much been embraced by the mainline denominations. Um, this is, 
these it's basically the idea that uh, that the Bible affirms homosexual behavior and homosexual relationships, and that uh, when someone says that they're gay, that that's um, that's a reflection of of how God made you, you know. And so people use those kinds of terms. This would be exemplified by someone like uh, like uh, Matthew Vines, who wrote the book God and the Gay Christian, which wasn't wasn't new in terms of what it was promoting. It really took a lot of a lot of the ideas that had been out there in theology and kind of mainstream them to some degree. And, uh, but I think, I think the affirming church is typically what people might think of when you use the term gay Christianity, they think of, you know, pride flag in front of the church, uh, you know, welcome and affirming all are welcome here. You know, that kind of, I'm sure you could drive down, uh, you know, the street, especially in upstate New York and see, you know, all the mainline churches, you know, United Methodists or, uh, you know, Presbyterian Church USA, you know, oh, yeah. Church of Christ and just, you know, see see the rainbow flag in the window and and all that kind of stuff. And so that's that's the affirming church and that's that's been a progressive push for a long time. I uh, I don't know if you want to comment on on each well, of Well, it, it, in my real. neck of the woods that's been something I'd say for the last uh, 15 years. I mean, it's just kind of we take it for granted if it's got a pride flag outside the church and generally up here it's like an old building it's it's a stone building uh mm -hmm. or or an, it might be wood but usually it's stone um but you know if it's uh old congregational or methodist yeah. or episcopalian it will nine times out of ten they have a pride flag out front uh and now they have ukrainian flags with the pride flag it's really <laughs> no american flag but it, it's very interesting to me um because when you in your neck of the woods, you're in Mississippi, I think, right? And it's yes. probably a lot different. The Methodists don't, aren't flying the pride flags down there, but so you we're familiar. As, yeah, as uh, you don't see it as often, but uh, you know, certain towns certainly lean more heavily into that than others. But um, yeah, so that I mean, that's that's kind of the biggest part of the movement, I would say. You know, is is the affirming church, the affirming theology finding some attempt to very directly um, argue that the Bible actually teaches that uh, that homosexuality is good or that homosexual relationships are good. The problem that they would argue is just that uh, that society has has so made it a taboo that then it's, you know, that people can't, and especially the church, you know, and the church's teaching makes it such a taboo that people just feel this guilt and shame when they shouldn't. And so we have to we have to combat that with with theology. It's it's interesting because it really is built more on kind of the modernist um, idea, and so it, it has because it it still makes an appeal to some degree to scriptural authority. You know, claiming that the Bible teaches this, whereas something like queer theology, you know, which is using the Bible but it's using it um, in these really combative ways to basically, you know, imaginatively deconstruct um what christians have traditionally thought about things just by kind of almost shock imagery you know like describing god as being a, a an orgy or the the trinity as an orgy that kind of idea um but which is just you know gross and blasphemous and shocking and it's supposed to be like that's the point of it you know it's it's supposed to make conservatives feel uncomfortable it's supposed to kind of be shocking and interesting because like oh like you hadn't thought you hadn't thought about it from that way you know and so the idea that god is queer comes through a lot in that queer theology but where they take the idea the concept of holiness as god being holy other 
And then that otherness idea, then they, they bring in with, with their, um, you know, queer theory and stuff and, and connect in. And so then they make this, this kind of queer theology thing. And, you know, I mean, in, in some ways people might look at queer theology and think, well, that's not really, that doesn't really seem very threatening to me, but the issue is the way that, um, it kind of carries out a lot in social media. I think, I think a lot of people just like the really pithy, short, combative statement that they can put online that then, you know, a person reads it and in passing, you know, begins to, it begins to unravel something in their head. You know, if you say that, uh, that David and Jonathan were homosexual lovers and so that you can do a queer reading of first Samuel through that perspective, you know, and you just kind of throw it out there as an idea. And then somebody, kind of passing by starts to think, well, you know, he, he does say that, uh, you know, they, they don't know the text well enough to really even combat it, but they're just thinking, oh, you know, it does say that, uh, you know, the, 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 the love of Jonathan, he, he appreciated more than the love of women. So, you know, maybe, maybe he was gay, you know? And so it just, it's intended to subvert. It's intended to attack and deconstruct. That's what the whole queer theology is. And there's, there's blurred edges, you know, within these, you know, these aren't necessarily clear cut categories. I just see generally there's this stream of affirming theology. There's a stream of queer theology, which is very academic. And of course, academic thinking always winds its way downstream. And then there's the, the gay celibate theology exemplified by the revoice conference, uh, which argues that, um, you know, it basically takes psychological ideas from secular psychology that, you know, ideas of orientation, you know, that you're born innately and immutably homosexual. You, you were born that way. You can't change. And then starts to try and take, uh, you know, conservative theological concepts like original sin and then connect that to this, um, to this whole ideology to, to basically justify, you know, the fact that someone who grew up in a conservative church felt certain attractions, temptations, desires, and, um, you know, felt uncomfortable about it, tried to pray, pray about it and nothing changed. They still had them. And so now maybe, you know, they can't overcome that. And so now they just have to kind of align themselves to this life of celibacy or so-called celibacy. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not convinced that all people are really even practicing celibacy as it, as it, you know, would historically be recognized, but basically just, um, you well, know, I, I saw Grant Hartley who had spoken at Revoice is dancing in San Francisco gay nightclubs. <laughs> like, oh, I was yeah. just like, well, that's, I mean, well, I guess as long as you're technically not like, it's so weird, but yeah, that's, that, that's sad, what you're talking about. That Yeah. That's exactly, you know, that's, that's such a sad decline too, you know, somebody who at one point, you know, is, I mean, he still claims to be celibate and still claims to, to be part of this whole kind of revoice side B position, but then to embrace aspects of, of the culture that are so, um, that, that are such a, an envelope pushing kind of move to, to just see, it's almost like, you know, when you were in, in, uh, in, um, you know, in youth group and somebody was like, well, how, how far can you go with, with somebody with, before you've committed sin, you know? And it's like, just trying to push that edge, you know, well, can we, can we hold hands? Can we snuggle on the couch? Can we, 
kiss? Can we fondle each other? You know, we haven't really committed the sexual act yet, you know, and it's just like that little push further and further down the line, um, you know, to, to accommodate these, these sinful desires and behaviors that you should be seeking to mortify. Like as a Christian, when you, when you're claiming the name of Christ, you know, that's what we're talking about here is people who are trying to take aspects of the Christian faith and wed them to this, this concept of homosexuality and, and sexual identity and to say that uh, that these are just reflections of culture or something, and that we can we can jettison parts of the way that the church has approached this, because that's the other side of the side B approach is is to really um, you know combat the church on this and say that well you haven't you haven't loved us very well and you haven't loved this people group very well this minority group you know sexual minorities you know are recognized in, in many circles as a as another minority group and so you haven't loved us well. And by love us well, they mean like you haven't, you, you don't agree with us. And so even when you, when people have, um, you know, offered their critique and pushback and rebuke of the revoice movement, the, the revoice authors and speakers come back and they say, well, you, um, you know, you're just not, you're, you're misrepresenting us and you're not very pastoral. And by pastoral, they just mean that you basically have to agree with our theological position. And um, so anyway, that's that gives you maybe a, a brief, somewhat brief overview of the three three categories of um, that I'm trying to deal with these three streams of thinking, I, I think, within the gay Christian movement. Right. And, and so the most extreme or most honest uh, stream, I think we can as Orthodox believers can all see, well, that's wrong, you know, yeah, say, uh, homosexual uh, advocacy. Uh, that Christians can even participate in these acts. We all know that's wrong. And and, and I've seen something similar that uh, in this, just broadly speaking, social justice, that a lot of people who actually do advocate soft versions of social justice uh, will often tell you very adamantly that they, they're not woke. They don't believe in social justice. Well, and then they'll, you know, they'll find out they think, <laughs> well, some monument should come down. Well, of course we need some diversity in our elder board. Well, of course you know, women are mistreated and we like you start hearing all these things and you're like, well, yeah. it sounds like you're kind of on that social justice train and, and they'll adamantly say, of course, I'm not. And, and you're slandering me. And, and I think the same things at play here in this um, this iteration of, of social justice thinking where LGBT uh, activists uh, are kind of they're viewed as if they're aggressive, at least you cannot associate with them. There are, mm -hmm. that that's a, still a pariah among conservative evangelicals. Like that, that's the kiss of death if you want to associate with that. Sure. So, so revoice side B advocates seem to just want to really distance themselves from that and say, no, I'm with you. I'm, I mean, I'm an Orthodox believer. I believe all the same things about sexuality, but yet they're pushing it in subtle ways. Sometimes, sometimes not so subtle, but people don't recognize that this is a, it, it's a trap. This is, uh, this is a very logic that will get us to the, those more extreme forms. So um, could you narrow in for us on where you see the real threat is for conservative evangelicals with side B and revoice and the distinctions that they try to make between attraction and uh, well, I mean, they use all kinds of words. There's attractions, temptations, desires. Yeah. Somewhere in that family, there's something that they think is acceptable. Yeah. 
Um, you know, I, I think there's multiple layers of threats. You know, when you think about uh, an issue like this, obviously at the theological level, the threat is just basically a loosening of your holding to to orthodox teaching and your willingness to to speak against it, honestly, you know, and to to be clear about it. You know, I mean, you, you started this conversation by talking about uh, the murkiness of the discussion. And a lot of that comes in by these these introductions of these these ideas. You know, when you hold out this concept that there's um, the, we don't know how it works, but basically somebody is born gay, you know, and so then that idea gets held out when people start talking about expectations and sanctification, you know, that God can't work that out or that God can't change you or God can't, um, you know, lessen those desires. And then those things start to play out even more when, um, you know, then, then somebody's faced with a temptation again and they're like, Oh, well, I thought, I thought I had changed or I thought God changed that part in me. So I guess they have, I guess God hasn't. So I guess I, I really am gay and I just have to figure out how to deal with that rather than realizing that you're going to be faced with all kinds of temptations and you're not defined by your temptations ultimately. I mean, that's so much of what this movement is, is this, a, this push to define people by their temptations. And, um, you know, and that just goes right alongside with what the secular ideology is teaching, which is that you are ultimately a product of your desires, that your greatest psychological needs are the ultimate reality of you as a person. And so whatever you feel like you need or want or are going after, then then people should not hinder you from that in any way. And that that is very attractive even to, to conservative Orthodox Christians, especially, especially Christian um parents who who have a child who's come out as homosexual and they're trying to figure out well how can i how can i understand this you know because they the, the the parent doesn't want to jettison the, the doctrine you know they've seen that happen but they're thinking well maybe maybe there's a way for my child who is gay. And so they're basically consenting that point, you know, that that their ultimate reality as a person is that they're a homosexual. So they, so then they start to justify in their mind, well, maybe they can be gay and Christian. And the, the biggest thing that I want for them is not that they would get over being gay, but that they would, that they would love the Lord, you know? And so once you, but once you start to begin to fracture those two points as if, you know, pursuing homosexuality is somehow aligned in in some way with with the pursuit of holiness and righteousness and truth, and that somebody could could pursue Christ and be embracing aspects of homosexual identity and and um, you know desire and kind of coddling those and keeping those without without the work of the Holy Spirit doing anything to really uh, change that. Then then that's I mean, that's a problem. I mean, it's, it leads to all kinds of other issues. And before you know it, I mean, there, there will be people who begin on the soft edge of it and they say, well, no, I, I'm not going to go that far, but then they're already making appeals to try and preserve a relationship or the, the emotional appeals of, of somebody saying, well, you know, these people are just so mistreated y'all. You just don't understand that, uh, you know, 
whenever you talk about the scripture, it's just like you're you're t- attacking us. You know, that's that's the claim. You know, is that there's even the label the clobber passages. That's what homosexual activists have come to to label the the passages of scripture that directly speak against homosexuality. You know, in Leviticus, in Romans, and First Corinthians, and First Timothy. You know, those passages have been labeled as clobber passages because they see they say that uh, Christians use them to just beat up on us. And so that's all we hear when you talk about it. Like, you know, the the revoice idea, John, you know, I haven't fleshed out this idea fully, but I, I sense that there's a there's a crisis of discipleship that's ultimately has happened underneath this where um, people are because the revoice movement itself is really claiming to be like this reclamation of, of church discipleship, you know, where all these people that have this shared common experience can just come together. They've kind of been rejected by the church. And so we don't need you to tell us anything true. We, we already understand that homosexuality is sinful. We don't need you to tell us that anymore. We just need you to listen to us, to love us, to empathize with us and to just, to just allow us to work out this stuff. Cause you can't, relate to our experience and we just have to work it out among ourselves. And so you just need to allow us the space to do that. And so, you know, I I think you can already sense a lot of ways that that can be very destructive to the overall mission and purpose of the church, but also to the unity of the church uh, where you're constantly claiming this victimhood status and where the church has abused you and, you know, concepts of spiritual abuse get thrown out there. I mean, Nate Collins has done that recently, the founder of Revoice, you know, I mean, he claimed that the the national statement was spiritual abuse and that anyone who even signed the statement was basically, you know, a tantamount to a spiritual abuser for for agreeing with a basic consensus statement on orthodox teaching on on sexuality, you know, to sign that you are you are a spiritual abuser now. And so, you know, I, there's so many ways. And, and you know, I, I think I sympathize with you and the, the, the ways that you've tried to patiently and diligently unpack so much of the social justice stuff because it starts out and people are like, well, I I don't really understand what the threat is. You know, isn't it good that we're, that we're more diverse now, or isn't it, isn't it good that we're able to recognize racism as a group? And hasn't that impacted some aspects of our institutions and the, the systems that undergird things? And so can't we talk about that? And, and so when you're trying to caution against against things, you know, it, it, it takes a lot of time and uh, patience to really get people to even acknowledge what's happening there. And, um, you know, that's why, I, I mean, that's why I wrote the book. That's why I've been speaking on this topic for the last couple of years. That's why I've tried to unpack some of the ideas because I, I feel like there is that subtle threat that's always there for us as Christians, because the thing is, Despite what the world says, and especially despite what LGBT activists says, evangelical Christians are loving people. They want to, they want to hear people out. They want to be loving. They want to be sensitive. They don't want to rush to judgment, and they want to find ways to be to be sensitive and caring for other people. And so, when people say that they've been hurt by the church, like that's an appeal that that hurts us. Like we don't want you to have been hurt by the church. We know that the church isn't a perfect place and that there's there's sin that still exists in us and ways that we've perpetuated that and ways that we haven't been sensitive and caring in the ways that we should. 
so it you know it's, it's such a rife mix for the work of of satan in his in his spiritual attack and warfare on the church to really cause christians to either just be completely silent on the issues or begin to find little ways to accommodate the leaven of this teaching so that maybe they can feel more comfortable with um, with where things are headed, because I think we all recognize the way that the world is so heavily opposed to the Christian position on this. So when you hear somebody say, well, the revoice stuff, you know, they're still holding to the Orthodox to the Orthodox teaching, you know, like, so that's, that's the claim, you know, so why, why can't you just, why can't you just recognize that they're getting it from both sides? And so because they have activists to their left that can say that they're too conservative, that then somehow they have this, this special middle ground where, um, you know, where that removes them from being able to be, uh, you know, attacked. Sure. So, well, you know, I was looking at uh, Galatians chapter six, verse one, it says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual should restore them with a spirit of gentleness, watch yourself so that you may not be tempted, carry one another's burdens in this way, fulfill the law of Christ. And this is, of course, right after the the fruit of the spirit and and not just the fruit of the spirit. I should probably uh, say Galatians five, um, verse uh, 24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. Since we live by the spirit, let us walk in step with the spirit. Let's not be conceited, provoking and envying one another. And then the passage that I just read. And so I look at this and I think, well, if. If you want a ministry to homosexuals, who people who struggle, let's say, with homosexual temptations, then I could sort of see something fitting under this umbrella where uh, those who are spiritual, in other words, those who are mature, who uh, don't struggle with that, <laughs> who have overcome that, can help other people overcome that as well. But yeah. that doesn't that's not the path that they're taking. And it, it seems like they're actually the path they're taking is they want all the people who struggle, at least revoice I'm thinking of, with yeah. same-sex attraction, some, some who don't seem to even struggle with it, they just embrace it, but let's just give it the best charitable reading we can. Assume they all just struggle with this and want to be rid of it. That's Those are the people that they're bringing into a room together, and they're all yeah. equally, they, they have this problem in some form equally there isn't someone who's spiritual there to restore. So the direction of the discipleship, if you will, seems to be, it's not an an upward direction of like, let's climb out of this pit and then rejoice when someone has reached a level of victory. It, it seems to me from my, from watching revoice material and from, from reading it over the years that that's not the goal. There's not really an end goal like that here. The end goal seems to be, change the church, not change the individual to match what believers should be with the ideal, but instead to change the church to accommodate this, uh, this tendency to be attracted to those of the same sex in a romantic, physical, or otherwise way. Yeah. So, so that's even different than like an, an alcoholics anonymous where, and I don't advocate for that, but it see at first it almost seems like it could be that where right. they're identifying with their temptation you know an aa does that you know i'm an alcoholic i disagree with that that's not biblical but but aa at least is like their attempt is like and let's get you to where you're not drinking at all and that you're and you leave eventually you're not part of those meetings anymore you're done with it 
yeah and and you're you're a changed person that's kind of the goal at least i don't see yeah. that with revoice no i mean you're exactly right i mean that i've i've noticed all of the the same things that you've described there this this overall you know we we're here to change the church you know when i've when i've shared uh, you know i gave a response to to nate collins and in, in the whole uh national statement thing and when i've shared that with some people I, i've had some people say well you know you know we 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 feel like you know there was something legitimate that nate collins was, was trying to initially say you know with his um you know to to be sympathetic towards him like he was he felt like you know the national statement didn't really qualify you know some things very very well and so there's been other better statements you know that have been released you know such as the the pca did a, a study committee on on sexuality that came out the the anglican church in north america did a statement but you know i've seen all of the side b guys really reject both of those things um yeah. you know even as in some ways i feel like they're they're not as clear as they could be on certain points and they make some accommodations even for side b within their their framework that's a whole separate discussion but you know they haven't embraced those as better you know quote unquote pastoral tools so to speak because basically they want to be the ones to have to lay down what the language is how we define terms what you can and can't say to to somebody who says that they struggle with homosexuality or identifies lgbt they want to be the ones to define how we should minister to those so you can't point someone to some kind of counseling group that that would help somebody you know overcome these things that's that used to be the old ex-gay idea you know um the ex-gay groups were were based from people who felt like they saw that deficiency in the church they're like pastors don't want to talk about this very much and they don't feel equipped even the ones who do and so you know they were trying to to find a way you know the good ones at least i mean there were some that were nefarious in their in their purposes but the good ones were always trying to help uh, people work through these issues in a way that they felt like they weren't getting support from local churches and local ministries uh, of the pastorate. So, you know, it was trying to be a correction in some ways and just a, a place for that to happen. And so, you know, Revoice in its, in its ideology and mentality is very much trying to set up basically if the, the word that keeps coming up to me is the safe space, you know, like the safe space mm -hmm. idea, like we just need this space for us you can't come in and speak into this because you don't know, you don't share our experience. So we get to set up the parameters of the discussion and, and the, the, the language and what literature we're going to build from and what we're going to. So, so that we make sure that all of the people who identify in the same way that we do um, feel protected and don't feel shamed, you know, and can feel empathized with, you know, you hear a lot of that kind of counseling terminology come up um, from them when they talk about these things, you know, as if the the way that we should define the the pastorate is just basically a base level empathy, uh, whatever you mean, whatever you mean by empathy, you know, there's a lot of stuff that gets attached to that terminology. But anyway, I, I think you're right. You know, it yeah. is this this thing that's setting itself up really as a as a kind of a church within a church thing where like we we are this group you can't come in 
and we know our experience better than you know our experience and only we can define the parameters of that experience so when you speak about it you're not qualified because you don't have that experience yeah it's interesting because you wouldn't do this with like an ethnic group uh, or at least it would look it would be frowned upon well yeah (laughs) i think most people would frown upon it at least it you know if you tried to say we are uh, we're black or we're white or we're Asian or we're, you know, and we, we have just such a unique experience. I guess social justice people are doing that to some extent, but it's still, they don't have like a revoice equivalent. I think where it's like we get together and then we go back to our churches and kind of um, try to make them more accommodating to us. But we get together in this annual meeting where we, we empathize with one another, kind of reassure right. each other, uh, we find a deeper fellowship, supposedly. I don't see that in, in these other identity factors, but this identity factor, which is surrounding a sinful inclination, seems to have this kind of glue that keeps them uh, attached to one another and, and feeling a, a deeper sense of belonging there than they do maybe even at their home church, perhaps. Uh, and I, I don't want to speak for everyone who, who attends these conferences, but um, it, it it it's the, just the overall impression that I get. The, the thing to me, though, that is the most confusing to outsiders when they're trying to look at this is the distinction that's often made between attraction or temptation and, and really it's orientation, I suppose, and then um, desire and uh, lust. And yeah. so that they can say that, well, as long, you know, I don't lust after people of the same gender, but I I do have a inclination towards them or something just just like heterosexuals have an inclination towards women i have an inclination towards men if i'm a male and and that's perfectly okay because it's not in this category of lust and so that's interesting to me because we do agree as orthodox believers that people who who are made in god's image designed by god have should have an inclination towards those of the opposite sex or Mm -hmm. they should have a there should be a desire naturally to want to get married and have children. Right. Yeah. So that's what they're, they're putting their desires in that category. And it's very hard to parse that out and to try to show people why that's wrong. So could you help us with that? What, what is, what's the error there? What, why can't we make that separation between let's say lust desire and temptations and attractions yeah yeah Yeah, you talk about this a little bit in the book right so the the way that people typically you know even the word when we use the word desire we're we usually are inferring something that feels a little more benign and morally neutral you know like you could desire to have a car you could desire to to you know play a sport or you could desire whatever you know it's not inherently there's not a moral a moral issue there the the issue comes you know when you are you know coveting something or you are desiring for it beyond what what you should you know you've made it into an idol that kind of thing that's and so people usually take that and they they apply it to the situation of of uh homosexuality and say well you know the we're not talking about lust so the way that the revoice guys typically describe lust is lustful fantasizing like they have a very specific and narrow definition of what it means to lust. 
And if you notice in some of their writing, they talk about same-sex sexual desire, you know, being wrong. But same-sex desire in itself is not wrong. Now, what do you mean by same-sex desire as as a, opposed to same-sex sexual desire? That's where the murkiness comes in because they don't always clearly define the difference there. But, you know, when, when a guy like uh, Greg Johnson, who wrote a book called Still Time to Care, he's a pastor in the PCA, actually, when he and one of his um, when he was being inquired about about some of these troubling positions that he held, even by his own uh, presbytery, he was he was questioned on this. And he described it as his heart melting when a good looking man walked into the room as being an expression of this same sex desire that he has. Now, when he's saying same sex desire and same sex attraction, he just means like this moral, this morally neutral that doesn't always tend in good directions, but it's not inherently necessarily sinful. Uh, it might be tied to original sin, but we can't repent of it because we can't repent of original right. sin. It's like a disability, some of them say. Yeah, yeah. Disability like, is is uh, typically how it gets thrown Greg out there. Cole Coles, I think is his name. He says that. Yeah, Gregory yeah. Coles talks yeah. about it. Wesley Hill talks about it. Nate Collins talks about it. Yeah, they, they all have kind of this category of disability and disability theology, which is a whole mess of a of a liberation theology kind of offshoot. But, you know, when you talk about your heart melting, when you view, um, you know, a good looking man walk into the room, like if I were to describe honestly anybody as melting my heart when I looked at them to my wife, you know, and then wanted to somehow justify myself and say, but I wasn't lusting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. See how that goes for you. You know, because the other thing that you have to remember with this too, is it's not just lust, it's also coveting, Um, you know, and, and covetousness is desiring something that God has forbid you from having. It's not, there's, there's no way that you, you can have this because it's not yours to have, it's not been granted to you, you know? So when you think of the 10 commandments, you know, obviously we recognize do not commit adultery and Christ you know, and Matthew expands that out, and we recognize that lustfulness can can tie in with with uh, you know adultery, so adultery of the heart, you know, so to speak. But you know, in the the tenth commandment that talks about covetousness, it uh, you know mentions do not covet your neighbor's wife. Now that's not describing you know necessarily sexual desire, but you're desiring this woman that does not belong to you. Like she, she's your neighbor's wife. That is, that is not your, your ground to even desire or wish that, you know, she were yours or something, you know? So even in a non-sexual way, you know, so when it comes down to this issue of of lust and, um, you know, desire, temptation, you know, in the book, you know, there's a section where, uh, I break down the passage in, um, in Colossians chapter three, and um, let me flip over to it because you know I wrote the book a while back. I've already forgotten uh, you know, things that is, you know exactly how I worded things. But you know, probably sexual... Colossians three five, I would think. Yes, yes, yeah, that's it. Um, you it know, talks but... about passions and uh, that's yeah, I can pull it up exactly right. Yeah, passion, which is pathos, which. Um, the experience of strong desire, passion, a feeling which the mind suffers, an affection of the mind, emotion, passion, passionate desire. You right. know, so 
and, and that list there, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. So all of that together is something that that uh, the Lord is telling us to put to death these earthly things within you. So like, even if you feel like, well, I haven't really crossed over a line into this lustful fantasizing. It's like, no, but you're, you're coveting something like that. And all of these guys, you know, kind of have this covetous idea that just keeps coming out, you know, like they wish they wish they could go live you know, the, the full reality of the homosexual lifestyle and all that that means, but they're Christians and so they can't. And so that means that they have to, they, suffer. Have, to, they, <laughs> they have to suffer and they have to kind of create alternate community within the church so that they can deal with this thing that God won't take away from them, but is their thorn in the flesh to suffer with. Right. But they can never come overcome it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.